Our scripture this morning is from Matthew's gospel, from the 11th chapter, beginning to read with the second verse. It's really one of the most poignant passages in all of scripture. We're talking about John the Baptist. Now, when John heard in prison about the things Jesus was doing, he sent word by his disciples to Jesus asking, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Jesus responded, go, report to John what you hear and see. Those who were blind are able to see. Those who were crippled are walking. People with skin diseases are cleansed. Those who were deaf now hear. Those who were dead are raised up. The poor have good news proclaimed to them. Happy are those who don't stumble and fall because of me. When John's disciples had gone, Jesus spoke to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A stalk blowing in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed up in refined clothes? Look, those who wear refined clothes are in royal palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He is the one of whom it is written. Look, I'm sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. Most of us are so used to the phrase, the name Jesus Christ, that it's easy for us to forget that this was a hard combination that was one at first, based on evidence that can be found in the New Testament. There were at least two candidates for the job of the Christ. There was Jesus, the carpenter's son, and there was John the Baptist, the son of Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary the daughter, the son of of Zechariah. According to Luke, John's birth was almost as miraculous as Jesus. It too was announced to his mother by the angel Gabriel. Furthermore, John was descended from priests on both his mother's side of the family and on his father's side of the family, which meant that he had not wasted any time as an apprentice to a woodworker. John was an evangelist, a preacher from the get-go. While Jesus sat down to fancy suppers in town with people who drank too much wine and laughed far too loudly and vulgarly, John lived an austere life in the wilderness with his equally austere disciples. If he found something to eat, he ate it. If he didn't, he didn't. He avoided alcohol altogether the same way he avoided everything and anything that might soften the sharpness of his focus on God. Everything about John set him apart as a holy man. His way of living, his clothing, but above all, the message that he preached with such passion 
in the desert surrounding Jerusalem. No one had heard anything like the preaching of John in Israel for 500 years or so. Ever since the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the land of Israel had been passed as a slave state, as an occupied country from one superpower to the next superpower to the next superpower. From Greece to Egypt to Syria to Rome. The promised land had become little more than a tarnished trophy that was handed from one great power to the next. They became little more, they became of little more value than what was represented by their ability to pay taxes to the power that occupied them. What was missing in all of this, they felt, was any reaction from God. It was almost like they were running around the promised land, Jerusalem, Jericho, Nazareth, saying, Hello? Is anybody up there? Is anybody watching? Where were the prophets? Where were the prophets who had once spoken for God to the people? Where was a Nathan opening David's heart to the full impact of his affair with Bathsheba? Where was Elijah calling down fire from heaven so that no one who could saw it could have any doubt who the God was that Elijah proclaimed? Where was Amos shouting himself hoarse about God's disgust with Israel's obscene wealth and empty religion? Those voices had been missing in Israel for a long time when John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness sounding like God's own air raid siren. Finally, someone was speaking God's language again, talking about sin instead of profit, about repentance instead of compromise. John wasn't interested in helping people become more productive members of society. He wanted them poised to enter God's kingdom and he was happy to condemn any and all who stood in their way. John let King Herod have it for being an all-around evil man. He let the Pharisees and the Sadducees have it for preaching religiousness instead of righteousness. He promised everyone that God was coming with a sharpened axe in one hand and a flaming torch in the other to clean up a world that had become impassable with dead wood. John's gospel was an invigorating one that won him a lot of converts. He preached to big crowds in the desert. And then John met Jesus. And things really moved into high gear. Finally, it looked as if things were getting off the ground. Finally, God had sent the chosen one. Surely it would not be long before the Messiah established justice on the earth. At least that was the hope right there at the beginning. But then Herod's soldiers showed up. And they came with a warrant for John's arrest. And the man who had lived as far as he could from human corruption found himself caged in Herod's basement like a rat. 
The good news was, he, was that he was alone there. Jesus was still free, still hastening the kingdom, which may have been the only consolation that John had. Somehow or another, John kept up with Jesus and what he was doing. Somehow or other, John was able to get word to Jesus and messages back from Jesus. The early reports of Jesus' ministry, for John at least, were, he, were encouraging and promising. There were healings and exorcism and signs and wonders. That was good. That, that would get people's attention so when he made the big announcement, they'd all be listening. And when Jesus finally then would declare God's judgment, that would give him the authority he needed to be heard and to impose it. Only the big announcement never came. While John sat muzzled in jail, all Jesus did was play doctor to some very marginal people. Lepers, demoniacs, hemorrhaging women, even a Roman soldier slave. What kind of witness was this to God's power? How was that going to help anyone know right from wrong? It's not possible to know what John was thinking without resorting to fiction. We don't know what went on inside him while he sat in Herod's dungeon. We do know that Jesus never organized a picket line outside Herod's palace demanding that John be released. And we do know that John's disciples came to Jesus to question him about the laxity of his spiritual practice. And we know what the, what, the, what the question was that John sent them to ask. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? It's hard for us to fathom the disappointment in that question from John. He had to be asking himself, was I wrong about you? I was sure wrong about something. If you know who you are, please just say so. If you're not the one, then we have to start the whole search process again and we have to do it quickly. Only Jesus would not just say so. Instead, he had John's Gospels turn around and instead of looking at him, look out at the people that were following Jesus. They were a gimpy, kind of twitchy group. But they were more whole than they had ever been in their lives before. They knew they were the lucky ones. There were plenty of blind people who were still blind, and there were plenty of dead people who were still dead. Jesus couldn't get around to everyone, but he had gotten around to them, and there was no doubt in their minds who he really was. Go and tell John what you see and what you hear, Jesus said to John's disciples. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. 
You see, it was Isaiah's prophecy come to life. But not the part that John had focused on in his preaching about God coming with with vengeance, with terrible recompense. But if you go on in that passage of Isaiah, you hear Isaiah talking about the time of the lame leaping like deer and the tongue of the speechless singing for joy. And as a loving P.S. to the one who had baptized him, Jesus added a new beatitude, I think, at the end. Not so much in these words, but I think this was what he wanted John to hear. And blessed is John for handling his disappointment in me. John had wanted the tidal wave of a Messiah. Someone who it would be impossible for anyone to miss or to deny that he was, in fact, the Messiah. Someone who could make a clean sweep of things. Someone who would witness to the omnipotent righteousness of God. And what John got instead was a steady drip of mercy from a man named Jesus in whom plenty of people saw no Messiah at all. As far as anyone knows, John died still unconvinced. He died wondering who Jesus was and what kind of joke God had played on him to have made him the message for such a languid Savior. I wish I could tell you that Jesus' own death and resurrection changed everything. That once word got out what God had done with him, everyone saw the light and turned toward it on the spot. I wish I could tell you today that everyone believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That everyone knows that he has wedged his body between the door, between heaven and earth to keep it ajar. That through him, God is at work in the world right now, bringing in the kingdom with power and great might. But if you, like me, have even one doubt in your mind, then I will be tell you the truth. Sometimes I would give anything for one fireball from heaven, for one blast of raw power from a tidal wave God who would sweep my and everyone else's doubts away forever. But that's not what I have. What I have instead is a steady drip of mercy from the followers of a man named Jesus who is still playing doctor to a lot of marginal people in this world like you and me. Right after the earthquake and tsunami in Japan, I read about two paramedics from Oregon who quit their jobs as EMTs in Portland, or Eugene, one or the other, I'm not sure which. And they flew to Japan to help pull bodies out of the mud and the muck and the debris. They didn't speak Japanese, not a word of it. They didn't know where they were going to stay once they got there. They didn't even delude themselves 
by telling themselves that they were going to be saving lives because they knew they weren't. They knew that all they were going to be doing was pulling corpses out of the muck and the mess. But they did it for the family. They were asked and they said they thought it might help the living to give them back their loved ones for burial. Another story I saw this summer was about a hay farmer in the Midwest who'd had a pretty good summer. He grew more fescue than he needed and was trying to decide what to do with it. One of the possibilities even being to burn it. When he heard about an Indian reservation in, the adjoin- in an adjoining state that had been hit hard by drought. With no irrigation, the reservation's hay crop had been wiped out and their cattle were starving. So this farmer loaded up his truck and spent the next week delivering tons of free hay to people who wondered what part of heaven he had dropped out of. I could go on and on with stories like this. Not big, not fancy, not even really dramatic. Just drip, drip, drip. They aren't big stories. They're small stories in which only a few people at a time are touched and saved. Meanwhile, There are many others who go on wondering if God has abandoned them. They listen to the bold claims of faith. They look at the modest returns. Who can blame them if they send their own message to Jesus? Are you he who is to come? Or shall we look for another? The only way I know to answer them is to point out how a stone over time, is shaped by water. Have you ever seen a hole in the middle of a stone rub smooth from just the drip over the years and years and years it took it? Water did that, drop by transparent, short-lived drop. Water transforms a rock as no tidal wave ever could. For reasons beyond our understanding, that's how the Messiah has decided to come for now. Not all at once, but steadily, drop by drop, for millennia. Every time someone lives as he lived, by loving as he loved, for others, it is the way of life. For some people, it is not enough. Drop by drop by drop. And blessed are those who take no offense at him. Amen.